Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. academic calling Laura Wides Munoz. Laura became a journalist covering the end of the Guatemalan Civil War, and since then, she has served as Vice President for Special Projects and Editorial Strategy at Univision's English Language Fusion Network in Miami, and as a Senior Story Editor for the network's award-winning TV and digital investigative teams. The Making of a Dream, which is her first published book, covers the past two decades of immigration history in America, from 9-11 to the Trump administration. Besides being a history, this book is the story of the young, undocumented activists, the Dreamers, who helped shift public opinion on immigration and pushed for comprehensive reform. So joining us on the phone right now is Laura Wides Munoz, author of The Making of a Dream, and thanks so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Of course. Um, so to start off, tell us how and when did you enter this story? Wow, that's that's a long a long story. <laughs> the short story is that I got my start in journalism covering the end of the Guatemalan Civil War, and mm-hmm. so I saw while I was working in Guatemala many of the reasons that people were displaced and wanting to flee their country. When I came back to the U.S., I started working in Los Angeles, and DHS had just been created, and so I was watching the beginning of this administration of, of a new kind of sort of immigration um, immigration enforcement. At the same time, I was a journalist and I was covering these laws that had been set up during Clinton's time and I saw sort of how the tougher sanctions were actually keeping people in the country longer because it was harder to come and go and they were starting to bring their families and I was covering all this as a journalist. Flash forward, you know, 10 years, 12 years, I had been covering immigration for a very long time and just feeling so frustrated and burnt out. But I was really inspired by these young people, uh, Felipe Salsa Rodriguez. I walked into this church and they were talking about this march they were going to do from Miami to Washington in the middle of winter, all these crazy things. But it was just crazy enough to make a good story. Mm-hmm. And so I started to follow them to know them and that was back in 2009 and I and I, I kept them in mind and, and that eventually led to the book and one of the really interesting things about um, reading this book reading about the story over time was watching how these youth activists evolve over time with the changing political climate technology um, a prime example being between that first walk you mentioned and then a second follow-up march that some activists do years later Right. I, I really found that fascinating because you had this first march in, in 2010, and that's really in reinvigorated the immigrants, immigrant rights movement and the youth. It had sort of just been a coming out moment in some ways, but uh, very scary. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. They didn't know if they were going to be detained um, if you know they they really thought they might be deported and they were very frightened and add to that two of the the leaders of the march um, were two 
young men who were, you know, in love and afraid to come out of their relationship. And they were terrified. This was, you know, uh, when Don't Don't Tell was still in effect and there wasn't a right to be married if you were in a same-sex relationship. And so there were so many things they were scared of. And then, you know, a few years later, you have this group that's coming out to Mart. And so they now felt like they could really, um, you know, work specifically on behalf of kids across the country. They have this better idea of sort of how to work the system, how to work within the system. And watching that evolution was really fascinating. It's the evolution of a movement. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I'm glad you brought up um, queer activists because one thing that was really interesting to read throughout this um, was that intersection between queer activists and undocumented activists, how those movements often um, join together. Why is that, that those movements were so in- intertwined? Right, and I talk much more about this in the book than I didn't mm-hmm. expect to. I didn't expect this to be a section. At some point, I just felt it would be disingenuous not to talk about it. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of causes, and one is, you know, when you already sort of feel like an outsider in one section, you're used to feeling that way, you may be more brave and more empowered to speak up in another area. You may also have less to lose, you know, if you're already, some of these some of these kids already felt rejected by their own immigrant communities because of their sexual identity, their gender, and so it was sort of like they weren't afraid they weren't as afraid of coming out. They also just felt more desperate. They just felt this desperation of once you come out of the closet in one aspect of your life, how can you repress such an important part of the other? How can you, there was this very pivotal moment when Felipe wants to talk about immigrant rights, but he not to hold hands with Isabel, his partner, and not to you know, make their relationship public. And he doesn't want to lie about that. He wants to be honest and, and and respectful of their relationship, but then he feels the weight of all these groups, some evangelical, some conservative, who are coming to support the young immigrants that they are are coming to, to give their support to, and if he comes out about his relationship, will that damage this young girl who, who could be deported and her ability to gain allies? And so he's, he's in this very fraught moment where he has to decide where his loyalties lie and, and what's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, another interesting thing is that it seems like there are different points throughout um, this history where um, these activists aren't all necessarily unified on what they want their goals to be. So, for example, there's one point where you talk about there's a Dream 9 movement and then a Dream 30 movement, and they're sort of going about these different tactics that are almost butting heads in ways. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, the Dream 9 and the Dream 30 and then eventually the Dream 150 were building on each other. It was the notion that young people were going to actually cross back into Mexico and and self-deport, calling attention both to the people who had already been deported and to people who couldn't, um, you know, who who were who couldn't cross over or um, had deported themselves out of fear and just sort of bring the whole issue out of Washington to the border and, and raise awareness and, and do something that was really going to shock the nation. And it, and it did, I think, initially, and then it got bigger and bigger. And 
immigrant groups sort of felt like, wait, we have some resources to be trying to, you know, get all these people out of detention, you know, case by case, 150 people, and that we didn't decide this. We don't want to put our resources in there. There was tension. I mean, look at what's happening in the border now. You see how much, re- how many resources each case would require. And at first, you know, I didn't know what to make of that. And actually, a lot of people that I was writing about were very worried about me covering and sort of showing that there was dissent within the movement. But what I came to realize, and especially looking at the history of movements, is that, of course, that's the natural, that's a natural aspect of all movements. It's our very different voices. That's what can disrupt them, but what also makes them stronger. And that when you have all these different voices, they all sort of propel each other forward, and you come probably closer to the center of um, you know something that everyone can get behind by, by having the different voices on all sides. And I didn't really realize how powerful that was, but I also learned through writing the book that I think there are foundations and groups that support the different strands of the movement, but sort of worry about supporting groups that they don't agree with. But if you only support one direction of the movement, then you're sort of artificially crafting it and you're silencing the natural voices that want to flow sort of part of the river that create, you know, change in our country. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, There's one thing in particular, um, when you talk about the um, dream movement and how that kind of came about, one of the unfortunate side effects of that is that in order for these dreamers, for this to work, um, they're very much portrayed as victims of this quote-unquote crime committed by their parents. So it's, they have to kind of throw their parents under the bus for that to work. Right, and, and, and I, again, this is one of the things I sort of discovered in the process of writing the book, talking to Marie Gonzalez, who's one of the young women, and she grew up in Missouri, and she her parents ended up being deported, and she was allowed to stay, spoiler mm-hmm. alert, but she talked about this visceral stomach ache and, and nausea she felt every time she had to get up and stand there and say, you know, I came to this country through no fault of my own. And that was a real tension. And I think a lot of the older groups were resentful that the dreamers, so-called dreamers, were asking for special protection so they could stay in the country. But what wasn't always conveyed is that they felt that they that they had tried, that groups had tried to get a broader protection and it had failed. Immigration reform had stalled over and over and over again. So they were trying to do anything that they could to to protect themselves, yes, but just to to do something. But that they were, it was a painful decision for them. They didn't do it lightly. And I think as they've grown up, it's become even harder for them to do that because they are now some of the parents and they now empathize more with their parents and they now see all the others who would still be stuck. And so, for example, when in Congress they're proposing that the dreamers be allowed to stay, but that, you know, it'd be impossible for their parents to do so, that's going to be, I think, a really tough sell mm-hmm. given the history of the movement and, and what these kids have been through. Mm, absolutely. Um, and so right now we have President Trump in office dealing with this, um, but for a good portion of the book, um, President Obama is the person charged there, um, and he comes across as very sympathetic, even though at times his hands seem tied by Congress. Um, and at one point he says something, which you quote in the book, um, it's that we live in a world with borders, and I'm president of a country with one, and I need to enforce these borders. 
So how do you reconcile that reality with um, all of these immigrants? Well, luckily I'm not, I don't have to make decisions. I'm not the, uh, the elected representative, <laughs> but I do think um, that is a really important question that I actually feel encouraged that Americans are finally grappling with. We want to be mm-hmm. a nation that is welcoming. We want to bring people in, but maybe we don't want to or can't or shouldn't bring everybody in. So how do we do it? Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, that's where you really get into immigration reform and, and making those tough decisions. But separate from that, we have to at some point deal with the people who've been here for 10, 20, 30 years living their lives, contributing, working, um, whose labor we're relying on, whose kids we've educated. What do we do with those kids and how do we find a path that acknowledges their existence and, and deals with them in a way that we can all live with? And I think that that is different than what we do with the borders moving forward. I think there's some people in my book who advocate for open borders, but I don't think that's where most of America is. Mm-hmm. So you think that's somewhere more in the middle? Definitely. I mean, obviously for protections, you want to know who's, who's coming in, who's coming out. I mean, certainly at a minimum, there's that reason. And then there's the broader reason of resources and all that at the same time. We obviously are a nation of immigrants. We have always had people coming in. We've always had that kind of replenishment. And so that's part of our national identity. It's also interesting that you you note know, that Obama was um, portrayed sympathetically because I don't think that all of his um, I don't think all of his supporters thought that you know there was sort of tension as to whether um, you know the dreamers were were making him look bad, and whether you know the book was too critical. So it's interesting that you came <laughs> away with that perspective. Yeah, it's, it, it, to me at least, it seems like he, as an individual, wants to do as much as he can, but because of all of the constraints, he's very restricted in what he can do. That was my impression, anyway. And I think what's exciting to me now is I feel like most Americans are going beyond the sort of will there be a debate in Congress, won't there be, and really thinking. What does it mean, you know, to have immigrants in long periods in camps? What does it mean to to have people here and literally pluck them out of our communities when they've been here for 20 years? Is that what we want to do? How do we punish people who are here doing bad things like the MS-13? How do we recognize and assimilate those who have been contributing and whose, you know, labor we've been using and taking? Um, so shifting to the current situation today, um, as someone who has followed this history for a long time, is very very familiar with all these processes, um, can you shed any light on the current situation um, where asylum seekers are being detained at the border, families are being separated, and all that? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was still an AP reporter, I wrote a story, I think, back in 2013 or no, mm-hmm. 2011 or 13, about how so many um, uh, immigration judges were retiring and the backlog then, and this was back in 2011, and that there was going to be a huge, huge backlog because there just weren't enough judges. And people, you know, cases were being bumped down the road several years because there was so much of a backlog. And I think that is, you know, the roosters are coming home, as it were, now, um, or the, I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but 
the issue now is that this is not happening. There's just such a huge backlog, and we do have to fix that system. And this is something that people have been talking about for years, but now we are seeing that that problem. And that is something that um, that Americans are going to have to decide. Do we either want sort of a, a pretend asylum system where you can say you want asylum, but essentially we'll just turn you away no matter how terrible your case, or do we want to actually review those cases? And when you review the cases, it requires resources. And are we willing to put those resources into these cases? But I think sometimes there seems like there's some false choices right now because for years, people who have been seeking asylum have um, been using ankle bracelets, you know, and, and those are produced by the same companies that have the detention facilities. And that has worked because if you're trying to seek asylum, you do want to show up for your cases and you get the ankle bracelet. It's not ideal, but it's it requires far fewer resources than keeping someone fed and you know housed all day long and obviously it's much preferable for the immigrants themselves mm-hmm. so Laura just have um, one more question for you and this is a question that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast since this is primarily for educators and their students who was your favorite teacher oh my gosh <laughs> so many it's terrible <laughs> <laughs> Well, oh, okay, don't get mad at me, the rest of you teachers, because teachers have been so influential in all my life, but I'm just going to highlight one person. Uh, Janet Hahn was my high school English teacher, and she taught me argument and debate. And also, we studied Bible um, in that class as sort of um, understanding the structure of, of the text. And um, she really taught me how to make an argument and, and I think how to write. And I feel like I was calling on her teachings and also my other English teacher, Gary McCown, uh, when I would write the book and I would think, you know, is there enough uh, tension in each chapter? Is there, where's the climax? Where's the denouement? Am I bringing the reader along? And am I stating clearly the arguments that I want to make in the parts that are are less narrative? And they would be stuck in my head, um, both of them. But with no disrespect to many other teachers, because um, you know I have been so grateful to all of them. <laughs> well, I think she would be very proud of the book that you've published. Thank you. She actually did come to my um, book to one of my book parties. It was very exciting. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. Well, Laura, thanks so much. This has been a terrific chat to have. Thank you so much. It's great to talk about it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.